subscribe to the Astros podcast. Joined by Justin Verlander getting the ball on opening day. Steve Sparks here, and I'm with Lance McCullers. Tons of interviews. Robert Ford joined by Michael Brantley. Alex Bregman. Carlos Correa returning to the lineup today. Highlights. That is lined in the right field, and that's going to get down for a base hit. High and deep, and it's gone. A grand slam. Follow your favorite team. Subscribe to the Astros podcast. We definitely love playing in front of our fans in Minute Maid Park. <laughs> For the H. They never said it would be easy. This is the Houston Astros Radio Network. Back to Astropod, the official podcast of the Houston Astros. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Astros Pod as we continue to give you a little bit of Astros material during this coronavirus pandemic. I am Todd Callis, and I'm joined by my television broadcast partner, Jeff Blum, hoping to create a little Astros content for you that's going to carry you through until we actually have baseball, which hopefully will be sooner rather than later. The Astros, by the way, have launched a Houston Together t-shirt with all proceeds from this t-shirt going directly to the Astros Foundation and its COVID-19 relief efforts. The t-shirt will say Houston Together on the front, and it'll say one city, one nation, one world. We're going to hear from Ryan Presley during this show. We're going to hear from Steve Sparks. Sparky is going to be involved in this show as well. He's going to have an interview a little bit later on, a little round table discussion with Dr. Mark Boom, the president and CEO of Houston Methodist, and Dr. David Littner, who is the chief of orthopedic and sports medicine. He's been the Astros team medical director for 25 years and somebody that my broadcast partner for the TV side knows very well, Jeff Blum. Blummer, welcome. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, these are some uh, interesting times, and I think it's also great that Sparky has the opportunity to have a little Q&A session and maybe give you know, some of our fans some insight into what is going on on the medical side. And obviously, being here in Houston, the, ac- the accessibility and uh, some of the brilliance just down the street in the medical district is available for Sparky to have that conversation. I think that's an incredible thing. There's probably going to spark some great conversation, pardon the pun. But at the same time, Dr. Littner has so much experience with the Houston Astros, and he's obviously great at what he does because he did a great job of keeping me on the field as hard as that was. But uh, hopefully some encouragement will come out of that conversation too. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think whenever we talk about living in Houston and we discuss all the benefits of being here, uh, first and foremost, whenever there's a scary situation like what's going on right now, where else would you rather be than Houston, Texas with their medical background? No, absolutely. And that's one thing that uh, Houston has prided itself on, just not only as a city, but being at the forefront of a lot of different industries, but it's definitely been at the forefront of, uh, of curing diseases, of handling diseases, and trying to find a way to make people's health that much better. So it is a great uh, opportunity to have these people at our fingertips. And, you know, during this time, it's also important to understand how busy these doctors are trying to help uh, with this pandemic, whether it be in the cure or the healthcare. So them offering their time to be able to answer some questions is a great thing too. Bummer, I know I'm looking forward to talking to Ryan Presley a little later on the show. There were times last year when you and I would look at each other and be like, what is going on? Like you always want to feel confident about your back end of the bullpen guys, but there was a time last year, especially in that first half when we would just be like one run lead, two innings to go 
game over. Yeah, it was amazement. It wasn't one of those panic-type situations where you get late in the ball game and you're going, oh my gosh, I hope our guys close it out. It was a joke when we got there. Uh, Presley would come out, shut the door, continue the streak that he was working on, and it just became uh, everyday routine that the back end of the bullpen for the Astros would close things out. And it was a luxury that uh, the manager at the time, A.J. Hinch, had, and we thoroughly enjoyed it too because it gave us plenty of fodder when we got late in the game to actually talk about how the Astros were going to close that thing out. So we're going to hear from Ryan in a little while later, uh, but this is a different time. We're not seeing Astros baseball. We're not seeing any sports right now. We're seeing some replays here and there. But my broadcast partner, Jeff Blum, normally we get to celebrate his birthday somewhere during the baseball schedule. But this year, his birthday was at home in the midst of the pandemic. Blummer, you just had a birthday on Sunday. How's a birthday in the middle of this coronavirus? The, the hardest part about my birthday this year, and I was talking about this with my girls and my wife because uh, one of my kids brought it up. They said, Dad, is this the first birthday that you've had not around a baseball field? And I kind of thought about it for a while, and I go, legitimately, you know, there may have been an off day in the past, but legitimately, it might have been 40 years since the time I had a birthday without baseball being involved somehow. So it was kind of disappointing to have that streak come to an end. But at the same time, it was very nice to be home with family and actually get spoiled rotten, which my girls did a great job of. Uh, we spent a lot of time by the pool out here and uh, spending some time outside because we were blessed with enough, good enough weather to uh, go out there and swim a little bit, barbecue, and enjoy the time. So it was, I was very grateful for the family time, but at the same time, there was a large part of my birthday missing, which was baseball and uh, my, my great teammates and you and Julia being around me at the same time. And I missed yeah. out. I mean, no, Chef Jimmy didn't give me a dessert this year. That's what sucks. <laughs> I know. Both you and Julie have already had birthdays during this pandemic, and it's brutal because we usually celebrate you guys on their broadcast in addition yeah. to uh, at the baseball field. But that's a cool way to look at it because in reality, since you're, all four of your girls have been born, you haven't had a chance to probably to celebrate your birthday with them. So uh, that, that must have been pretty cool. And Sunday could not have, as you said, but been a better day. <laughs> yeah, it was outstanding. It was nice to wake up, see their smiling faces, and just kind of take a leisurely stroll through the morning with a nice cup of coffee and reminisce about uh, birthdays past because now uh, is I've got plenty park. behind me and hopefully home. plenty more to look forward to. What's the during our broadcast to try and keep people engaged on what to expect when the season gets going again and then it's also given us an opportunity and you'll love this is to expand on a couple more sports you know the NFL draft just uh, went by you know the sense of golf maybe being one of the first sports coming back and that's something you and I enjoy doing on the road is going out and playing golf so it's kind of given us an opportunity to expand a little bit maybe read a little bit deeper into some of these websites sports websites and dig out some information but you're right it does get it can be a little redundant at times and uh, forces you to be a little more creative which isn't a bad thing no and I think everybody's just kind of uh, looking for some sort of news and there's just not a whole lot out there I know MLB has had a lot of different plans in place but they're more just ideas than actual plans uh, but hopefully as we get closer to uh, the middle and end of May, it seems like 
slowly but surely we're getting steps in the right direction, which is the first time we can say that in a while. Yeah, and and we're all doing the same thing, you know. Uh, you, myself, fans, we're all watching uh, for updates. We're waiting to hear the latest news, and at the same time, we're trying to keep an eye on a lot of the data that's coming in about this virus that has uh, taken over our world. And some of the numbers, you know, actually look like they're pretty good. So I think that's encouraging. You know, if we can kind of flatten this thing out like we have, take the spin rate out of the virus, and you know, make sure that everybody is healthy and start to talk about plans. I think that's probably the biggest thing for us right now is understanding that the conversation is being had. And I know that's what I take solace or hope in is the fact that we're that the greater minds in the, in the game of baseball and ownership and players are actually sitting down and actually can have the conversation. And hopefully those conversations go well and they can figure something out and bring baseball back to the fans. Having uh, been a big Saturday Night Live fan throughout my life and then watching their two at-home shows uh, over the last few weeks, show two Saturday was much better than their first show. <laughs> and along those lines, we are slowly uh, turning the wheels and brainstorming, but it sounds like, Blummer, without trying to uh, give away too much information, but it sounds like we're going to try and develop some content on our end, on the AT&T Sportsnet end, that hopefully, uh, in addition to these podcasts, which have been great and the the radio guys and us have been involved with. But in uh, in addition to that, we may have some content, uh, hopefully in the not too distant future, uh, where we actually put out some stuff on, on a video. Let's be honest. I mean, we can be humble all we want, but uh, you, myself, Julia, Kevin Eschenfelder, I mean, there, there are minds and there are people who have an absolute desire to work, and it's because we love the game of baseball and we want to bring what we can to the fans. And then you add in the history of the Astros and some of the great decades and great teams that they've had. It kind of lends itself to maybe an opportunity. And then, you know, during this pandemic, I'm learning that Zoom or you know, podcast or some of these platforms actually allow us to reach out farther than the borders of Houston and get in contact with players from the past or even current players like we're going to have Ryan Presley on here pretty soon is we can get to those guys and hear the stories, hear the insight. And then obviously myself, you, Julia, our wheels are constantly turning because I know that you feel the same way I do. We're very routine oriented and there is a part of our life that is not uh, functioning properly right now, but our mind is still in it. So I think that you, myself, and uh, Julia will come up with some pretty good ideas because I know for a fact uh, that I'm chomping at the bit to see you guys again and talk to you guys, not just about life, but about baseball and about what possibly this 2020 season can bring about. I can go with the backwards cap and the uh, unshaven look on the radio, but are you still going? I got this salt oh, man. pepper goatee going. You got the facial hair going still? TK, man, why are you going to make fun of me like that, dude? I know it's no, been a while you, and you, you miss me. You look good. Dude, I tried the facial hair, but I just cannot get the coverage I need to actually fill in anything that resembles a beard or a goatee or a mustache or a crumb catcher, whatever you want to call these things. <laughs> and so I, I finally caved in, broke out the razor and shaved my face. And uh, the one thing that I do have a plethora of, thankfully, is a, a full head of hair. And uh, over the last month, what was about two weeks ago, I think, I finally broke down and asked a buddy if he had clippers. And uh, I 
borrowed a set of clippers and my wife and I actually had a pretty good salon day where I colored her hair, which was way more pressure on me than it was on her to cut my hair. And uh, thankfully we made it out uh, pretty much unscathed, but uh, I'm with you in the sense that the part of the fun of these podcasts is like you said, you can wear the hat backwards, you can wear the t-shirt, you can let the, you know, the facial hair grow out a little bit, but I bet your facial hair is going pretty strong right now. Yeah, it's going strong. I think I'm going to go with it until either we hit our first 100 degree day or baseball's back one or the other. (laughs) It's not yeah. the most comfortable. It's not the most comfortable when it's out and it's warm out. Uh, Ryan Presley, our guest, has strong facial hair. Game he always has that unshaven <laughs> look and the beard and mustache going. Um, he had before we bring him in. He had a remarkable year last year to the point where it was almost like we would look at each other. Everybody gets tense late in the game, broadcasters included. But when you had Presley and Asuna doing what they were doing. A one-run lead felt like it was game over last year, which you never, hardly ever get that feeling. No, I, I completely agree. And it's, you know, it's not a knock on these guys that come in and late in the game where you get tense. It's just the, it's the part of the game where you're supposed to get tense. You bring in your ace pitchers out of the bullpen, and then usually they're facing the best part of the lineup, and the expectation is uncertain. It wasn't like that with Ryan Presley and Roberto Osuna. Roberto Osuna had a couple of hiccups, but I don't feel like Ryan Presley was really that guy that when he stepped on the mound, he never looked uh, uncertain about what he was doing. He looked like he was in sync with the catchers that were going out there putting down the signs. And then there was just this unbelievable confidence in the ability to execute pitches for a guy like Ryan Presley. And it was an absolute blast to watch. He had a string of getting so many hitters out in a row and and doing phenomenal things. And I think he kind of set us up for that to to expect greatness from him. And he followed through with, with it. It was just unfortunate that later in the season that knee injury popped up. But uh, this guy has been an absolute, uh, you know, game, literally a game changer in the back end of that bullpen when he came over and became an Astro. He's ready for a 1-2 from Presley. Bases loaded, one out. Pitch on the way. Did he go around on the pitch away? Yes, he did, says Mark Carlson at first. Couldn't hold up on the slider, and Torres is the second out. And Torres slumps his shoulders as he gets rung up. And so far in this ballgame, that's about as big as it's gotten. Pressure packed moment here, the first pitch breaking ball, and that's tapped to the right side. Presley toward the line, he's got it, and he'll tag out Gregorius all by himself. Ryan Presley. And makes a great fielding play, and that'll squash the threat by the Yankees. How are you dealing with this coronavirus pandemic right now? Oh, I mean, you know, just like everybody else, just trying to stay busy. That's the hard thing to do right now. But, um, you know, kind of settling in a routine to, to stay in baseball shape. So whenever they give us the, the go-ahead, it'll, it'll be ready to go. But, um, you know, just trying to stay busy as much as I can. I think I've cleaned my garage out two or three times already. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's almost like there's no more chores left right you've checked everything off plus you're going back through a second time i mean it zero chores to do which is nice yeah that honey do list can shrink awfully quickly which is kind of cool that we get all that stuff out of the way and it kind of brings back a little bit of that off-season mode for you and you talked about how you're trying to stay in shape what are you doing and are, is there anybody to work out with what do you got going on um, well, obviously, we you know we're keeping it to a to a minimum group. Um, and when I say minimum group, it's just 
three of us, including. So I've been playing catch with Alex Claudio. Um, he actually, it's kind of funny. He lives right down the road from me, uh, reliever for the Rangers. And um, we work out together as well. And, and that's just with my trainer. So uh, we've, we've been bouncing around. Sometimes we work out in, in a garage and other times we'll find a, find another place to go do some, do some stuff. But um, it's mainly just trying to keep the arm in shape and, and playing catch with, with somebody who uh, can catch me, I guess, because it's always kind of hard <laughs> whenever you're, you're playing catch with a high school kid and sometimes you just you cringe a little bit just because you don't know if it's going to hit him in the teeth or not. But well, for the most part, it's just been it's been <laughs> been pretty easy. Yeah, let's be honest. You've got some nasty stuff, and we talk about spin rates all the time. I can't imagine some poor kid at sixteen, seventeen trying to catch that hammer coming in, even if you tell him it's coming. But still, you got that gear where you want to snap a good one off, don't you? Oh yeah, yeah. I try not to. <laughs> I hear you. It's it's good that you're watching out for the youth uh, baseball coming up. But uh, is what's the contact like between yourself and your teammates during this uh, COVID crisis that we got going on right now? Well, we got. We obviously have a group message going along with the team. Um, Lance has been kind of keeping us informed on with the union and what they're saying and stuff like that. Uh, but for the most part, it's just, you know, we're just waiting to get that phone call to, to get going. It's just a waiting game right now. And uh, I don't know. That's really all I can tell you. I mean, there's nothing really else to say. <laughs> Ryan Presley joining us here on our Astros pod. Ryan, you mentioned, uh, first of all, protecting high school kids with your stuff but with alex claudio and you having to catch him i'm a little concerned on your end i mean this guy's got a little funk from the sidearm lefty uh, does he ever throw those frisbees and make it a little tough on you well you know i had a little bit of practice with joe smith uh this spring training he was my catch partner um so i guess it kind of prepared me for it but yes ac is absolutely nasty and when he th when he throws it looks like it's so we'll we'll have kind of like a little bit of an alleyway um, and then, uh, it, when he throws it, it looks like it's going to clip the side of the wall and it just runs all the way back. And about 90% of the time he palms me right in the hand. Uh, so <laughs> it's always nice to, you know, to have a little bit of a bruise right there, but you know, he's, um, he doesn't throw in the upper nineties, which is nice, but it's still that low nineties when it comes in relatively quick and, and gets you unsurprisingly in a fingertip or something. It's awesome. I love it. And, and just another reminder, as much of a stud as you were in high school hitting, but just another reminder why it's nice not to have to hit against some of these guys at the big league level. Oh, God, yeah. I, I mean, sometimes I stand in the bullpen – or not stand in the bullpens, but I'll sit there and watch, you know, like Osuna or, you know, Devo throw. And I just – I look back, and I'm like, I'm so glad I am not a hitter. Like, some of the stuff that these guys – like, I don't know how Bregman and, and Trout and all these guys – I don't know how they do it, but – I think pitching and throwing stuff is better f suited for me. Yeah, you were a pretty good athlete playing football all back in the day and then uh, coming up and hitting, like TK was saying, and then moving to the bullpen with the stuff that you had. You talked about Joe Smith being your catch partner. Tell everybody at home, how does that actually come about where you guys figure out who's going to be catch partners and does that last the entire year? Uh, most of the times it does um, until, you know, you either go on the injured list or somebody gets sent down or traded. Um but I think me and Joe just kind of looked at each other right before spring training even started. And I could tell Joe didn't want to play catch with me, and rightfully so, because I've been wearing his ankles out a lot in the beginning there of spring go. training. There you go. But the same goes for him, too, you know. But uh, it's, uh, you know, we, we like to play catch with each other. You know, it, he gives me positive feedback most of the time. And 
you know, it's good to have a kind of a guy like that who's got 13 plus years in the big leagues who, you know, I'll, I'll tend to panic every once in a while in spring training of, man, I don't feel ready. I don't feel good. I don't know what's going on. He'll just, I could tell he wants to slap me in the back of the head, but <laughs> he won't. But for the most part, he, he calms me down a lot. And he's like, look, man, you'll be fine. Just keep doing your normal routine and it'll click. And sure enough, it usually does. But it's always nice to, to see Joe get a little riled up to, to calm me down. Personality about himself being in that bullpen, like you said, he's got the experience. He's been around for a long time. But you, him, and Osuna, and you know when Will Harris was a – you guys are in high-leverage situations every time. How important was it to have a guy like Joe Smith and that kind of calm, cool, collected uh, attitude out there? It's it's the best, you know. I mean, he um, he likes to keep things light down there as well. So it's just a guy that you, you tremendously respect in the aspect of – how many how long he's been around how many teammates he's had and teams he's played for and just the 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 obstacles and stuff that he's had to clear in his career and he's able to translate translate that to guys like me and Josh James and Urquidy and a lot of guys and even though we don't have like the same throwing motion it it's the experience that goes along with being in the big leagues for that amount of time so having that guy in your bullpen is also is always a, a great aspect of of bullpen chemistry i guess um you know i had when i was with the twins i had a guy uh, named matt belisle who was the best in <laughs> kind of like joe smith just always calm always you know pushing you to to be better and what can you have done better in this way and that way and you know having those guys those guys with that amount of time down there is always really nice we had Joe on a previous Astros podcast, and he talked about a little bit of the dynamics that happens in the bullpen. I got to think, Ryan, that when you guys are down there, he, he talked about some riddles and jokes and just random conversations that happen out there. I've got to think, though, as a group, guys that have to hang out in the bullpen all summer long are probably the best prepared athletes for this pandemic because you're kind of in a confined area for hours on end anyhow, right? <laughs> you know, and I, it's funny that you asked me that because there's been a couple people who have asked me, like, hey, you know, what are you doing to stay ready? I was like, baseball players and Blum, and Blum knows this, that it is the best, like, we're all about making adjustments. It's how fast you can make adjustments. And when you can make adjustments on the fly and, and written, doing whatever you need to do with your routine, I think that we, during this pandemic, we've been able to adjust relatively quickly. Obviously, it took probably a couple of weeks for guys to kind of get their sense of direction. Um, however, with us, you know, bullpen, bullpen guys, you know, we're already pretty crazy as it is, so we'll do whatever it takes to stay ready. <laughs> <laughs> hey, congrats coming off a great year. I, I know that the 2019 year was incredible and that you set the major league mark for consecutive outings without allowing a run, and, which is phenomenal. All-star season for you. The knee kind of got you a little bit in the second half. How's the knee feeling now? And I know you didn't want to use it as an excuse, but that, that had to be something that was really, uh, really grabbing at you a lot last year. Yeah, um, you know, Obviously, trying to pitch on one leg is not really ideal. Um, but, you know, the Nationals and Rays and Yankees, they don't care about that kind of stuff. So um, sometimes you just kind of have to grit your teeth and, and suck it up. But, you know, unfortunately, I wasn't necessarily myself in, uh, in the postseason. But, you know, put in a lot of hard work in the offseason with my PT and my trainer. And, um, you know, I think we got everything right and ready to go. And it was just Man, I was just looking my chops to get back and let the season start because, you know, that kind of left a bad taste in my mouth last year with 
the way we lost and and stuff like that and me not being able to perform at my level that I know I'm able to perform at. So uh, with everything 100% now, it's just we're ready to go. And I, I was ready to get on the mound and start slinging it as hard as I could. And since you've become an Astro, you've been able to go to the postseason in 2018-19. And TK talked about you becoming an all-star last season in 2019. And I wanted to ask you a question, go back in time a little bit to maybe around 2017. During that season, you had a strikeout per nine at nine. And then you showed up in 2018 and finished the season with almost 13. That's an uptick of four strikeouts per nine. Can you explain that by any chance? Uh, you know, I think it's a lot with uh, Strami and, um, you know, a lot of the analytics that we had, uh, they – they pretty much broke everything down for me saying, you know, you, you're a very high spin rate kind of guy. You can use this to your advantage. Um, however, your pitch selection is very one-sided, I guess. Um, and after, you know, and having guys like Stassi, Maldonado, you know, Torino's back there who, who really understand how to call a game and can see, I guess, swings that other fans and players can't really recognize in the moment. Uh, saying probably a curveball would be better at this point or a fastball, whatever it might be. Um, my splits on my pitches were very heavy fastball, and you know I could get in a very predictable count of when I was going to throw a curveball or a slider. And <clears throat> I think once I was able to start, you know, flipping my curveball and my slider in first pitch, second pitch, and then you know everything just opens up. And before you knew it, my splits of you know, my fastball slider and curveball were all ranging in the 30% to 32%. So it wasn't like I was heavy on one pitch in particular. So I think that kind of opened up a lot of doors for me and being able to have, I guess, hitters not being able to sit on one pitch. Um, so I was able to mix everything up and keep hitters on their toes. And I don't think they were really able to game plan whenever they came face me. I think there was just more of well, I'm going to sit on a pitch and hopefully he throws it. And sometimes they were right, but, you know, most of the time I was right. <laughs> no, you've done a very good job of being right, and you make my seat up in the booth extremely comfortable, but also enjoyable to watch you go out there and work. I want you to talk a little bit about your preparation before a game, maybe going into a series, and then I want you to talk a little bit more about how the catchers and you work during at-bats in order to make those adjustments to use your stuff effectively because the game plan is usually before the game, you set a game plan or you talk with the uh, bullpen coach to get an uh, you know, idea of guys you're facing before you come in, but then you, you also recognize that your catcher can help you recognize maybe a swing that uh, you can mix up and uh, get off that game plan a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, like I said earlier, um, baseball players, I think, are the best at making adjustments. Um, so, you know, you could be facing a guy like Stanton or Trout who, you know, past couple weeks they've been, be uh, been getting beat on pitches away. Well, you know how they, they like to make an adjustment. They're tired of getting beat on that pitch away. So, you know, they might be looking away. And when I pitch, my curveball and slider who tends to go to – the outer side of the of the plate, you know, they might they might start getting a lot more hits over there and whatnot. So, um, having Miller in the bullpen, who our bullpen coach, who can tell me exactly, you know, hey, curveball over slider to this guy, fastball over slider to him, first couple pitches. But you know, for the most part, they've been just kind of staying, hey, stay with your strengths, do what you know how to do, and and pitch the way that you know how to pitch. And obviously, you you pick and choose you know, times where you think that you're, I guess, 
if it's an O2 pitch and I don't want to throw a fastball right here, but you know, Torinos or Maldonado or whoever is behind the plate would say, Hey, you're throwing a fastball right here. Okay. What you saw something that I didn't see. So it's bouncing ideas and, and I guess seeing the way they approach you whenever you're pitching, it's just, and obviously you see film and stuff like that too. So there's a bunch, a bunch of different scenarios that can come into play on how you approach a guy and how people hand you a scouting report and stuff like that. So it's just more of, you know, just trying to, I guess, know when your situation, I guess, as a reliever is coming up and start preparing of, okay, probably about the fifth inning or sixth inning, I'm, I might look at the, the lineup and, okay, it's going to turn over here in about an inning. I probably will face Trout, Calhoun, and Simmons. All right, I'm, I need to start preparing of how I'm going to be able to pitch them. And before I even get on the mound, I've faced Mike Trout in my head a hundred times before I even have thrown him a pitch. And I think that's a big visualization for me to, to stay consistent. So, you know, it's stuff like that. And you pick up on that stuff, you know, the more and more you're in the big leagues. And um, like I said, going back to a guy like Joe Smith, who can kind of teach you on that kind of stuff too. So it's, you know, my routine might change a little bit every once in a while, but not, I usually do the same exact stuff. Ryan, that's some great insight as to how you get ready for you know, each outing. And it's funny that you mentioned getting ready for trout because it seemed like every time the toughest part of the lineup was due up, Blummer and I would look at, at each other and be like, guess who's in the game now? It's Ryan Presley. Cause AJ yeah, always time. locked and loaded you. It, it was uh, invariable, right? Like as it was either two, three, four, three, four, five. It seemed like every time. Yeah. Yeah. And it didn't matter if it was the seventh inning, eighth inning or ninth inning, you know, I just, you know, I love being put in those situations and I honestly like that's, that's the best feeling in the world is when you can go out there and you can get through that part of the line. And I'm not saying it happens every single time, but when you do it and you get through that lineup, it gives you more confidence and more confidence and more confidence every single time you do it. So, you know, going out there and facing those kind of guys and they're, they're unbelievable hitters and some of the best athletes and, and baseball players in the world. So being able to go out there and, and face the two, three, four, three, four, five, whatever it might be, the hardest part of the lineup, you know, I, I love when I get to be able to go out there and do that, and especially, you know, sometimes when you go out there and you you see the look that, you know, when you get on the mound and, and Skip hands you the ball and around you, all your teammates just kind of kind of give you that, that grin of, all right, how many pitches is it going to take you to get out of this one? Or, you know, how, how much fun you get to have out there with those kind of guys in that kind of a situation. It's just, I don't know, man, it's just one of those things where, as a pitcher, I, I love being able to face the best hitters in the world. I think that is one of the funnest, most fun thing you could ever do. Yeah, it's uh, it was amazing how comfortable you felt as an Astros fan with the way you and Asuna were locking things down uh, all of last season. That first half was remarkable. I always like to, to hear guys' backstories a little bit, and I know – uh, after being, you know, the high school star that you were at American Heritage and then Marcus your last year, um, you had a choice. You were thinking about going to Texas Tech. You got signed by the, the Red Sox after an 11th round pick, and then you worked your way through the Red Sox minor leagues. But it was 2012 going into 2013. You had only been at double-A for 14 games, had a great Arizona fall league. Next thing you know, you're a rule five pick of the Minnesota Twins. You're in the big leagues the next year as one of the youngest guys in the Twins bullpen. What was that transition like, having not spent a lot of time above Class A at that point of your career? 
I was definitely, definitely nervous. <laughs> and I just remember, you know, sitting next to Anthony Swarzak and, and Jared Burton and both of them just kind of, you know, they, they, they were there at that point in time too. And, um, you know, it's just, you just try to slow the game down as much as you possibly can. I know it's a lot to take in. You're, you're playing in front of crowds that you've never played in front of as many as, I don't know, opening day, there's what, 30, 35, 40,000 people there. And I had never played in front of that many people. So, you know, it's just being able to slow the game down as much as you possibly can so that you can go out there and accomplish what you want to accomplish and also give, you know, your coaches and, and the guys, your teammates behind you, the confidence of whenever that door swings open, it's, oh, here comes press or here comes Ryan or Osuna, like, the more confidence you build in your teammates, it gives an, an, a different aspect of, all right, we got this, let's go. Or if we're down, it kind of gives them a little jolt, I guess. Um, so to be consistent as you possibly can coming out of that bullpen, is, it's hard to do. But, you know, having the guys around me, you know, it, it builds all the confidence in the world that I need to, to go out there and get my job done. But when, when I first got there after getting Rule 5 by the Twins, it was – Slowly but surely getting there, but there was a couple of times where I got my head handed to me, and those are some stories for a different day. But <laughs> it was, uh, you know, it's it's a definitely a learning process of being able to do something like that. I like TK. We we love the uh, stories that you guys bring us in how you uh, get to the point you're at, and uh, the stories that you give us on a daily basis. But I want to get inside. The, the Midsummer Classic, playing in the All-Star Game for the first time. Give me an idea of, of how you felt walking into that clubhouse for the first time because it's one thing to be honored with, with how great you had been for that first half of the season, but it's another thing to walk into a clubhouse where you have absolutely destroyed some guys' evenings with the stuff that you have. What was it like walking into that clubhouse? Uh I mean, I will say walking into that clubhouse for the first time and seeing, you know, CC Sabathia and, and Trout and, you know, Whit Merrifield and all these guys who are on the other side of the clubhouse that you play against all the time. And it's intimidating. Um, you know, I see Araldis Chapman coming around the corner and it looks like he can punch me from the other side of the room. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just in awe of all these guys that, you know, who are just, they're stars, you know, and, but at the same time, you kind of have to realize, Hey, they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. So it's just more of enjoying the experience and, and having fun. It was such a great time to be out there in Cleveland for that, for that experience. But unfortunately I didn't get the pitch, but I think, I think I was more so, I think I was pretty sore from the couple of games before that. And I know we had the first game back in Texas. So I, I told AC, I was like, you know what? I mean, if we got an opportunity to, to let me in there, I, I'm all for it. But at the same time, you know, I think that I need to, to stay pretty fresh for whenever this, you know, whenever we start back up because my teammates need me more than this all-star game does. So um, I was just more happy to be there and, and to be honored as an all-star. So uh, it was just a, an unbelievable experience. Yeah, a lot of good things happening for you here in the last couple of years. The All-Star appearance, some of these playoff experiences that you've had. But other than the All-Star game, what has been, would you say, would be your career highlight up to this point? Oh, man. Dang. That's a good question. Um, I would have to say probably my record. Um, 
and it was and not necessarily just the record, but I think how I finished that record and how the play that I make to break the record, I guess. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I I saw Tony Kemp when I when I made it at Fenway. I saw Tony Kemp out and he was playing second base that that night. And I remember seeing Yuli and Rafael Devers running down the line, and I saw. Campy just on the other side of Yuli. So I just said, you know what? If I throw this ball as hard as I can, it'll either hit him in the back of the head and it'll go in the stands or, or Campy will catch it. Tough play. Presley off balance throw. What a job by Presley. A tremendous defensive play in foul territory and tumbles over. That extends his scoreless streak. What a defensive play. A miraculous play up that first baseline. He didn't want to let that thing go foul. He can do it all. The longest scoreless streak, Ryan Presley, the longest scoreless streak in a decade as he has the longest streak since Brad Ziegler in 08 as he passes Craig Kimbrell. You know, I just, I threw it and it just happened to leak right over his shoulder and right in the Yuli's glove. And I was just like, whoa, all right. Well, that was fun, you know? And then I didn't really, I didn't really think about it until I got to the dugout and I see Garrett and JV and they're, they're just kind of smiling and looking at me and, I was like, what are y'all looking at? And they're like, dude, you did it. You did it, man. I was like, oh, yeah. Dude, that yeah, was one of the cool. greatest plays we've ever seen. <laughs> hey, you know, you're still, still tricking people. I don't know how, but I am. <laughs> Broke uh, the record set by Craig Kimbrell uh, a few years earlier and got up to 40 games scoreless. First of all, I mean, I know you have, you've been saying how you've been staying busy this offseason, but it was before all this happened. You had a little bit of an interesting offseason. You got married, so congratulations on that. And I know now that you. Uh, you and Kat are dealing with this coronavirus pandemic. We talked to uh, Joe. We talked about Joe Smith earlier. You guys also got involved a little bit with Project Frontline, didn't you? Yeah, we did. Um, Catherine, my wife, she uh, she kind of set all that up with uh, Allie and and Joe and I were just, you know, just on the side, like, yeah, we'll do it. You know, it's it's a raising a great cause, and and for those people who are battling this you know this um this virus head on you know it's it, it's simply something that i don't think i would be able to do just because i'd be too scared to to <laughs> to contract it i guess but you know they're they're throwing on their scrubs and you know and they're going straight at it it's you know i think donating some money to them and and you know being able to put some meals in their stomach and being able to keep going is you know, it's, it's the least that we can do, and hopefully, we get baseball going again, and it gives people around the world, a, you know, a little bit of a normalcy in their life to see some live sporting events. But until then, we're we're just going to keep keep our heads down and keep moving forward. I know uh, you and Kat just recently had the NFL draft, one of the few live sporting events on in uh, the last few months. Cat uh, formerly worked with the Dallas Cowboys as a member of the DCC, and she's still, it seems like, according to social media, a huge Cowboys uh, supporter, and she actually predicted that they were going to draft a wide receiver in the first round. Was it, Were you guys all locked into the NFL draft? Well, first off, I don't know how she came up with that pick, and she nailed it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm pretty sure everybody around the country was also like, how did CeeDee Lamb fall to the Cowboys at 17? Um, but she nailed it, yeah, and we were, we were pretty locked in, and <laughs> It was kind of funny whenever they said C.D. Lamb's name, she just kind of looked at me and smiled. She goes, what'd she say? I should be a broadcaster or a sport or something. Like, I should be making these picks. I was dying laughing. It was so funny. But I was like, babe, they're going to go heavy defense. They need heavy defense. She goes, just watch. Just watch. And 
sure enough, she was right. <laughs> that is outstanding. Yeah, maybe, you know, during this time, she can start offering up, you know, some bios on some of these guys, and maybe she could help Las Vegas start doing some lines, too, so that we can start betting on some of these games. That'd be highly entertaining. You should probably um, get some stuff from her. <laughs> she's got more insight than a lot of people that we saw on TV, that's for sure. But uh, getting back to the talk of baseball and the possibility of a season coming up this season, and TK talking about your new wife, Kat, have you guys had the conversation of the possibility that you might be uh, sequestered away from her in order to get parts of this season in? Yeah, we've had that conversation. She's obviously, you know, I don't think any wife. Well, actually, you know what? I think she probably is ready to get rid of me right now. But, uh, <laughs> Come on. But for the most part, I think, you know, yeah, they, I don't know if it'd be, she's not going to be happy with it, obviously. But, you know, I think in the grand scheme of things, we should probably get this going just because, you know, I mean, baseball did this during World War II, you know, like they needed something to kind of take their mind off of what is happening in the real world. And, you know, it's a sacrifice that we would have to make, you know, stepping away from our families to do it. But I think at this point, everybody just wants to play. Um, however, you know, it's all about, it's a lot of moving parts right now, but um, I think she would be okay with it for the most part. Obviously, it would be pretty tough. Um, but you know what? Life's tough sometimes, so you just got to suck it up. No, I agree with you in that sense, and that's actually I, – I appreciate the the idea of handling it that way. My last question for you is going to be if and when this season does start their talks of playing with no fans. Do you think that will affect you guys at all? It will definitely be weird. Um it, it, well, honestly, it'll be like the GCL days again. Uh, no fans. <laughs> True. Just won't be playing at – well, I don't know. We might be playing during the day a lot too. So, honestly, it'll be kind of like the Gulf Coast League. Um, but, you know, having no fans, it's definitely going to be, you know, weird whenever there's nobody down in the bullpen wearing you out. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think – I think any kind of sporting event will be happy. Anybody will be okay with it. Well, we really can't wait to see number 55 back out there doing your thing and the rest of the team. We really appreciate the time too, Ryan. You and Kat keep doing your thing, but we can't wait to see you out there in a baseball field. And uh, thanks for giving us the time here. No problem. We appreciate y'all. Y'all stay safe and keep doing what you're doing. Great stuff today from Ryan Presley. And Blummer, you and I know when he had that streak going, you don't want to talk too much about the streak. So maybe he didn't do a lot of interviews about the streak. We don't get a chance to hear a lot from Ryan Presley. So to me, that was awesome insight to hear him dive into some of those topics today. Yeah, you know, he kind of impressed me as a guy during the season was kind of in that uh, big unit, Randy Johnson mode or the Justin Verlander that's just constantly locked in. So you didn't get much out of him during the season. He's a great guy. We knew that in the limited exposure we do have to him. But uh, he was adamant about during that streak to to not mess it up. And I think his motive was not to mess it up for the team because the team was so successful at the time. But it was kind of fun to talk to him today and have him open up. We get to see some insights, some of the fun uh, that happens in the bullpen and what he does to prepare and get ready for some of these outings but at the same time in talking to him and hearing you know that joy of talking about the game of baseball kind of gives me the impression that he's another guy that misses the game of baseball it was a great conversation you know what's funny because i thought the same thing that you just said and i've got to think talking to you now as a former major league player for all those years there is a camaraderie that that was probably 
as much as you are a family guy and, and you're one of the biggest family guys of anybody in baseball, but as much as you're a family guy, there is a certain bond that you make with those other 24 guys plus that you can't replicate once your career is over. And I've got to think a lot of guys are missing that right now. No, you actually bring up a really good point because one question that, you, uh, you know, a lot of guys that retire, what do you miss most about the game? And everybody anticipates on the field or certain successes, but they always say the clubhouse. And it's a special relationship in the clubhouse for both position players, starting pitchers, and then there's bullpen guys. Bullpen guys have a unique relationship with each other just because they are, you know, you brought it up during the during the questioning. You know, they're basically quarantined to a bullpen throughout the course of a game. So they have an idea of what it's like to be stuck with somebody in a close vicinity for a long time. So you get to know each other really well. But at the same time, it does become family. It does become routine. And you rely on them during these games. And I I think that's where some of this trust and some of that relationship is built and I, I completely agree in the sense that these guys you know it's even more it's even crazier to think that they started spring training developed those relationships again and started them back up and now they've had to hit the pause button and they're probably can't wait to get back to seeing each other again and getting that going again because they just got a taste of it there in February. Yeah, one guy we haven't seen since February, I'm not sure if this is good or bad, is radio color analyst Steve Sparks. We've been missing some of those crazy jokes of his. Uh, But Steve, in a very serious situation, had a chance at a recent roundtable to have a little Q&A to discuss the COVID-19 situation as well as the impact on Houston and Houston-related sports. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Sparks. I'm one of the Houston Astros radio broadcasters, and we're certainly happy that you're with us this afternoon. And we're especially lucky to have a couple of gentlemen on here with us to to help us out during this this crucial time uh, in history. And it's a couple of doctors, and we know – that anxiety is always kind of lingering uh, when you don't have the answers to questions. And I don't think anybody has all the answers to some questions, but we're going to ask enough questions to see what we can uh, learn. So I'm going to introduce uh, both of these gentlemen. Uh, first off is Dr. Mark Boom. He's the president and the CEO of Houston Methodist since 2012. He maintains a part-time clinical practice where his special interests are preventive medicine lipid disorders, and hypertension. So, Dr. Boom, it's an honor to have you with us. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks, Steve. It's great to be here. All right. We also have Dr. David Lentner. He's the Chief of Orthopedics and Sports Medicine at Houston Methodist, and he's the Team Medical Director for the Astros, and he's done that for 25 years. He's played an essential role with the Astros, directing the care of the current players and evaluating the health of prospective players. So we'll have a lot of questions for Dr. Lintner about what's going on with the players right now, too. So, uh, David Lintner, thank thank you very much for coming on with us as well. Oh, my pleasure. It's good to connect with the baseball world again. It is great, man. Everybody misses baseball. Uh, everybody wants to get out there. I, I know that, that baseball's played a huge role in the healing process uh, on many occasions in, in American history, and uh, I, I would just expect nothing less this time is is they'll try to be responsible getting the the players out there but uh dr boom i want to start with you uh what's the current state of the COVID 19 in our local community here well that's um that's some good news um we're not certainly out of the woods yet by any stretch and i think COVID is going to be a reality for us uh, for probably quite some time uh, okay. But we are very clearly past the peak in our community. Um, it's been it's been good to see. So, 
when we peaked, we were probably seeing six, 700 cases diagnosed in the greater Houston area. That's the eight county region a day. And um, uh, mm. yesterday was only 140. Most of the days the last week have been uh, in the 200 range. Uh, inside the hospitals as well, we've seen some significant decline in the number of patients, um, not at every hospital, not at every uh, institution across the medical center, but on aggregate, we are all down. Um, Harris Health is a hot spot still, but uh, all the other hospital systems have, have really begun to come down with the number of patients we're seeing, which is great news. Yeah, Dr. Boone, that's what I was going to ask you. I saw that there was a reduction in, in the cases in the hospitals this past week, but how safe is Houston right now, just uh, everyday life in Houston? Well, you know, it's uh, we are all going to be living with precautions for quite some time. And if there was probably one, one or two key messages coming from today, you know, the first is how we all behave together and take care of each other um, is going to be critical to what happens uh, going forward. If we look right now at where things are, no doubt in my mind, not one iota of doubt when I look at the data, that all the sacrifices we made have put us in the position we are today in terms of being able to start to release restrictions. If you look at when, for instance, we went to stay at home, uh, about 18 days after stay at home is when we saw the peak. That's precisely what we would have expected in the kind of 14-day period to 18-day to period, something in that range. And we saw exactly that. So, you know, the Houston area is safe with modifications. And what that means um, is, if first off, if you are a vulnerable patient, so you are over 65, you have other health issues which might make you more at risk, you need to be staying home still and you need to be much more careful than others. Others, I think, can safely start to follow the easing of restrictions that the governor described um, with continued social distancing, uh, with individuals, with masking, which was very critically important, uh, and with frequent hand hygiene and other, other things along those ways. It's going to have to be a, a gradual return to life that's closer to what we used to know as normal. You talk about how we behave together. What, what type of activities give you the most apprehension? Well, anytime you put a lot of people together in a, in a close space for prolonged periods of time and you don't have okay. um, all of those other protections in place, you know, those kinds of things make me concerned. So you, you still hear nationally some of the guidelines around, you know, keeping gatherings small. Um, you know, one of the things that I think seems to have been missed in, in the governor's orders is while there is a gradual return to business uh, starting up and, you know, 25% density, for mm -hmm. instance, within a lot of those businesses, it still very clearly says do not get into big gatherings. You know, people should not be getting together and, and having cocktail parties to celebrate the end of this and other things that we all desperately love to do, um, but they're the wrong thing now. And so the, the most important things are going to be to maintain some of that distancing, really interact with other people um, as minimally as possible to get the economy back up and running, to get things moving right. forward appropriately, but without doing necessarily all the social things yet that we might like, that we obviously would like to do. Yeah, there's a balance there. Are there treatments that you've seen as potentially effective right now? You know, it's it's too soon to say. Um, I'd say the two things that are out there that give us all the most hope um, are some form of antibody treatment, and I'll expand on that in a second, and then okay. one or two of the antivirals. Um, remdesivir is one of the ones that's been described. Most of the other things that are out there while being looked at, I, I wouldn't say there's much data to support um, so antibody treatment really can be, uh, you know, given passively, and what that means is um, uh, if, if somebody else gets 
the virus and then they develop their own antibodies and we can get their plasma and we can talk some more about that in detail. Um, we can then give the antibodies from someone else to another patient. And we, we see some signs for real cautious hope around that. And then later we may even see some ability of, uh, biotechnology to actually manufacture some of those uh, antibodies, which would be a great way to scale that up. Uh, and then, you know, you can form active antibody. To form active antibody, you either have to, you know, that means you, your, your body is actively forming the antibody. Um, you either have to be infected with the virus, so you have to be one of the people who gets it, does well, and then forms antibody, or you have to be given a vaccination, which will give you antibody, which, of course, is still a long way away. Okay, so the question what a lot of people want to find out when we're talking about these antibodies, can you be reinfected once you get the virus? Yeah, that's a, that's one of the $64,000 questions out there, and right. uh, we don't know. Um, and it's just I, I flat out I have to say we just don't know the answer. The WHO keeps ringing the, the alarm bell a little bit that they are concerned. They're seeing that in some of the international data. Um, okay. But quite frankly, the virus is not well well understood enough for that. Let me, when I explain that, uh, uh, if, if you look at normal testing, which is a nasal, nasal swab at the back of the throat, basically, a nasopharyngeal swab, it's only about 70% sensitive. In other words, if you get 100 people with it, you'll pick up about 70, 75 of those people. Um, a lot of that has to do with characteristics of where the virus might be at that time, sampling techniques, a lot of other things like that. And so we don't know yet whether some of those people they're describing maybe had sequential swabbing, but, uh, you know, the swabbing was a false negative in the middle and then was a true positive on either end. And it looks like a reinfection when it never actually went away. It's also a, when, when it is there and the virus is there, um, the test is amazingly uh, powerful at detecting just a little bit of, of the nucleic acid sequences, the RNA that's part of the virus. So even a broken up virus in someone's nose that's still there would be detected. It doesn't detect whether the virus is alive and propagating or whether it's fragments of the virus. So it's still a question that we just don't know the answer to. Okay. How are asymptomatic people spreading the virus? Is it through talking? Is it breathing or touching surfaces? What, what, do you, what have you seen? Well, it's, this is one of the big challenges with this virus, right? The more information we get, the higher the asymptomatic population we see. We're now seeing you know, some early indicators in some areas with some surveillance that's been done of antibody testing and other things, that there may be more people infected than we than we thought. Now, that's a double-edged mm -hmm. sword. The good news on that is when we, well, someday when we look back, we may look back and say the overall mortality of this, mortality rate of this virus was lower than we thought. Now, let me be clear, this is a bad actor. When people get it and people get sick, we, you know, and we see them in the hospital, we see people that are incredibly sick many times. Um, you know, you see in hospital in New York, they reported a 21% death rate for anybody who made it to the hospital. Um, you know, that's nothing like the flu. So, you know, so in some population of people, it's incredibly um, fatal and incredibly aggressive. But we may see with the with the asymptomatic numbers that it's actually on an aggregate population basis less less fatal than was initially thought. But the flip side of that is when you have asymptomatic carriers of a disease, it is far more communicable. And without it. So it's a very double-edged sword. And that is why we saw this be as explosive as it is. I mean, really, if you look at the flu, 
there's not a dramatic amount. There are some, but there's not a dramatic number of minimally symptomatic people with the flu. When people get the flu, we generally know people have the flu. Uh, and so um, that's been one of the big challenges here. In terms of asymptomatically or, or otherwise spreading it, it's really spread the same way whether you're symptomatic or asymptomatic. It is droplet spread. That means you know, anytime we speak, anytime we cough, we sneeze, we clear our throat, you know, sometimes a little spit comes out when we speak, you know, whatever all those things are, there are little droplets, far, far bigger than the, than the actual virus is, but little droplets mm. that spread. The studies will say most of those droplets will settle out within a six-foot radius, which is why you see all the six-foot distancing. Um, but those go on surfaces, and most of the way people will get infected, obviously, if I cough right in your face, I may give it straight to you, but otherwise, most right. of the way people are, are getting infected is that droplet sitting on a surface. Someone else touches the surface. They touch their face. They touch their mouth and they get it. It doesn't mean there's absolutely 0% um, uh, you know, aerosolized spread. There may be some, particularly for somebody who's really up close for a long period of time, and certainly in medical procedures, that's something we worry about. But far and away, the, the mechanism is through the spread of droplets. When people are crossing each other, say, say they're walking on a sidewalk and they, they pass each other going in opposite directions, does there need to be a little bit of space in there when, when, when you cross paths? Yeah, I think in general, you just want to, we, we want to socially distance. Now, you know, there's two pieces to that. There's how close you are and how long you are close to someone. So, you know, when we do contact tracing of a patient, uh, let's say the public health officials do, and somebody, we know they're positive, you know, we're not really worrying about the person that they walked right by on the sidewalk at one moment unless, you know, they coughed right in their face or something like that. What we're right. worried about is people who spent, you know, five, ten minutes or more um, in close proximity with that individual, people who shared, you know, utensils, who shared a kitchen, who shared a bathroom, who shared a workspace. I mean, those are the people um, in particular that we look for as, as, as significant risk. You know, outside is actually one of the safest places you can be because of just simple air currents will, will tend to, you know, dissipate the virus pretty quickly, uh, even okay. if you are in close proximity with someone. All right, Dr. Boone, can, can you speak to the, the this is a little uh, debate going on, the new county requirements on wearing masks and what the medical community's view on, on that order is and why it's important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and you know the the it's it's there's obviously been lots of discussion about this, um, yeah. you know, and lots of politics, unfortunately, um, you know, on both sides of the aisle around this. Um, and actually, the governor's order yesterday basically overruled all the mandatory fines, you know, and everything else that are associated there. And so you can get into the debate about that or not. But frankly, the right thing to do is to wear a mask. And the reason okay. those things were put in, in fact, Houston was the last of the major cities in Texas. The reason they were put in is because um, we believe wearing a mask can protect each other. Um, so regardless of what the orders say, people need to wear masks when they're in public. Um, it is the right thing to do. And it's it's one of those social contract kinds of things. Um, it's It's not necessarily that if I go to the grocery store and I'm walking the aisles that I'm going to protect myself by wearing a mask. I might, perhaps, you know, certainly if somebody walked up to me and coughed right on me. But by and large, what I'm doing is I'm protecting everybody else who comes behind mm -hmm. me in the grocery store. Because if I don't right. know that I have it yet um, and I cough or I sneeze or I, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, 
touch my mouth touch and then touch a, touch yep. something else, you know, I may have left the virus behind for them. If I have a mask on, we can markedly decrease that. And so it's, again, a social contract that if everybody really does that, it can dramatically decrease the spread of virus. So we are, we are strongly encouraging people as they go back into the community, as they go back into the workforce, as these restrictions ease, that masking is a significant part and a way of life um, for a while. It's not the most comfortable thing. I mean, obviously, we as physicians uh, wear masks, you know, all the time. I mean, me, me a lot less than Dr. Lintner, who does every time he's in the operating room, obviously. Um, it's something mm-hmm. you get, you kind of learn to deal with. And uh, hopefully it's not something that's with us ad infinitum, but it is going to be with us for some time. And, you know, the key is we ease restrictions is that we get the economy going again, that we get life back as we know it a little bit going again, but that we don't do it so fast that we have a significant second wave or second peak and basically regret everything we did. Because if we have a second peak, it's going to be way higher than the first one. And all the misery we've gone through the last six, seven weeks is going to be magnified uh, multifold the next time, which is frankly what I'm most worried about. And that's why we really have to be sure we, we all follow these things. Okay. Well, that's great advice. We appreciate that. What's someone's first step? If you come in contact uh, with someone who's tested positive for COVID-19, what's the first step? Well, any, the, especially as, as this ramps back up here now, as we start ramping the economy back up a little bit, testing and tracing is going to be a critical part. In the governor's order yesterday, he talked about getting in the next couple of weeks up to 4,000 individuals around the state who are doing testing and tracing. So, if you have come into contact, you know, obviously, if it's a glancing, passing contact, you, you probably don't have tons to worry about, but I would call your physician and discuss that with him or her. You certainly can get tested. Um, if it's more than that, really, you should stay home. You should call your physician, discuss the issues with your physician, work on a testing schedule. Um, you know, odds are, um, you know, if, if let's say you came into contact substantially with somebody just yesterday, but you know you spent a bunch of time with them, you know, the next day, we're probably not going to do it, be able to do a test that even will be meaningful, but you'll probably need to stay home for a couple of days. We'll test you. We'll see where that is, but it's going to depend on uh, your Does the virus not probably show up in for coordination. a little while? Does the well, virus yeah, not show so up? If I, right. So the, the virus is going to go in and, and uh, you know, while let's say you and I are together and I have the virus and we spend some time mm-hmm. together and I've just given you the virus. Um, sorry, um, but uh, in the next day or two, um, you're going to be asymptomatic. You're probably going to have a really low level of virus. It may be okay. detectable, but odds are will not be detectable. Um, but over the course of two to three days, as it's replicating and increasing and in the, in the right places, basically, to test, it will probably be testable. It's not to say it couldn't be tested in those first couple of days, but it's going to be a lower probability and okay. lower use, usefulness. But it, it is testable a couple of days even before you would have symptoms. The median time to symptoms is five days. So if, if, we, if you have a very known exposure, we know that the vast majority of people between three and seven days will develop symptoms. Not, not everybody. There's a tail that goes all the way out to two weeks. But the vast okay. majority of people, um, you know, probably 70, 80% of infections happen in that kind of four or five day time frame around five days. Okay. Do you think COVID is going to be like the Spanish flu and have a second wave later this year? Well, you know, everybody's talking about that. Fauci talks about that. I mean, I think the question we, the question that I think we don't know is, is it a second wave or does it never really go away? Um, and I, I think that's obviously still TBD. I think if it does go away this summer, I think there is a very high probability and very high risk that we see another wave in the fall. 
Um, if it doesn't go away and bubbles along at a, at a lower level, it also potentially could ramp up a little bit in the fall if you look at some of the temperature dynamics and other things. But either way, I think we will most likely, none of us have a crystal ball, but most likely be dealing with this in the fall. If this does, really in either scenario, but let's say particularly if this does go away um, and it completely vanishes and we go, we all take a big breath of you know relief and it's mid-July and we're sitting there saying, boy, isn't this great? Life's back to normal. What's mm-hmm. going to be critically important is we still will have some adapted behaviors that need to happen. But really critically, um, this time around, the country, the CDC, the public health departments, we're going to have to have really active surveillance happening. So at the first sign of it rearing its ugly head again in, you know, September, October, as things around the world cool back down, um, that, yeah. that or, you know, in our hemisphere, um, that we would detect it. Um, that's if it goes away. If it doesn't go away, I think it's going to be a constant sort of whack-a-mole kind of thing. I mean, we're going to have constant work of public health departments and others working together to identify hotspots, kind of you know, tighten things back, do quarantine, a number of other things like that. That's got That's the goal, if, if it's still there. The goal, of course, would be to get rid of it, but the reality is, you know, the virus is going to decide that, not us, um, and we're going to have to respond to whatever it decides. Yeah, does the, does the normal uh, flu shot that you take annually uh, help with the immunity for the COVID? Zero. No, it has nothing, nothing to do with okay. a completely different virus. Um, now, I will say, um, you know, we're, we've kind of on the tail end now of the flu season, which is good. Uh, actually, most places ran out of vaccine because there was kind of a little bit of a run on it at, through COVID. Um, but when the fall vaccines come out, um, you know, typically the U.S. population, the adult population who's eligible for vaccination and who the CDC would recommend be vaccinated, about 45 percent of people do so. We really need to get people better vaccinated this year because the double whammy of the flu and COVID is really dangerous. But also, it'd be so much easier to manage through a difficult COVID season if we didn't have to manage through a difficult flu season at the same time. Gotcha. All right. I've seen that if you're a healthy, verified COVID survivor, that we should donate plasma. Can you explain why our plasma is needed and what this process is like? Yeah, this is I mean, plasma uh, treatment. This is the convalescent plasma treatment. You know, goes back to like the 1880s. It was developed for diphtheria, uh, was the first disease. In fact, uh, the the person who did some of this won a Nobel Prize, I think, right around the turn of the last century. Uh, and so it's an old technique. And basically, plasma is the fluid part of blood. And in the fluid part of blood, you have antibodies and a bunch of other factors and other things that float around. And so we can take you and basically have, you know, you as, let's say, if you were a, a verified survivor and you're a couple weeks out from, from finishing your illness and you've okay. developed antibodies and we will take that fluid off of you. It's a process very similar to donating blood. It's a little longer because they're actually separating out the, uh, the fluid portion from the blood. Um, but uh, you'll, you'll spend about an hour, um, you know, time in to time out to donate blood like that. And one person, one donation like that can actually help two people or, you know, can give two treatments. And so, you know, it can be quite effective. And I will say we've had well, well over 100 donors now. And, you know, we've had some who've come back five, six, seven, eight times now. Um, so the people who are doing that are incredibly generous of, of you know, of, of our heart and mind. And, and uh, it's really helpful. We've, we've treated uh, well over 50 people now. And we don't, you know, yet know. It's what we're what we've treated with right now is is leading up to a randomized control trial, and so, you know, in medicine, you never really, really know therapy until um, you get a randomized control trial. And there's lots of other things we're doing for people. But I will say, a whole host of those people have gone home. A whole host of those people have come off the ventilator. 
Uh, mm. So we are cautiously optimistic with, with the results we're seeing there. The other major therapy that I alluded to before that we're optimistic about and that we'll, we will see international trial data come out in the first half of May, most likely, and that's okay. Gilead Pharmaceuticals, which is remdesivir. And we have reason, again, anecdotally, uh, internally, to be optimistic. And there's been some other data around the world. Not all of it. There's been some conflicting data. But most of the data suggesting out there that uh, there's some hope that it will be uh, somewhat effective. All right. We're talking with Dr. Mark Boone, the president and CEO of Houston Methodist since 2012. I've got a hypothetical for you. Uh, let's say a few months ago, I had a high fever that subsided after four days and a cough for about four weeks, let's say. And if I had the virus and now carry the antibodies, I want to help others. Am I able to get tested for antibodies? Um, so uh, a couple comments on that. First off, if it was a few months ago, most likely this was not COVID. We really don't have good evidence, although there's been a lot on the internet about it. Uh, you know, okay. that, that in a few months ago time frame, i.e. December, early January, that there really uh, was significant COVID, if any, in the United States. There are likely okay, some good. in the latter half of February. Um, so, you know, after February, it's certainly possible, although still there's so many other causes. Um, but if there's some reason somebody thinks they may have had it, um, antibody mm -hmm. testing is coming. Um, some of it's out there already. Quite frankly, um, the, because of a rush to market, the FDA uh, sort of allowed, you know, I think there's almost 100 different antibody tests that have come in. A lot of them uh, made in China now because, you know, of course, they, they had the head start there. Um, right. And what we're seeing so far is a lot of variability in the testing. So we're not confident in the quality and consistency of what we're seeing. Those are mostly what I'd call qualitative tests, meaning they tell you yes, no. Um, like almost think of like almost a pregnancy test. It tells okay. it detects, you know, hormones at a certain level to tell you whether you're pregnant or not. If you're below that level, it may be negative. But if it's above that level, they're pretty good tests. Same thing here, but we're seeing a fair number of false positives. So people where it says, yes, you had this. And then when we test them with more sophisticated means, they don't, they, they didn't, and we see a fair number of false negatives. So we're still trying to sort through that. The gold standard is something called ELISA, E-L-I-S-A. Um, we have that in place already. It's being validated. Uh, and, uh, you know, within a week or two, we'll be able to do pretty high quantities of that. That gives you quantitative results. So it gives you the number of antibodies or the amount of antibodies you have and is, is a, a very, you know, tried and true method that we use. Uh, for testing antibodies. And so that will probably be the gold standard that we will all use. And then we're going to take a lot of those products that are available in large quantities, those qualitative tests, test them up against that and decide, okay, we like this one over here and we'll have 10,000 of that and make it available. And then it will be quite easy, I think, to get that kind of testing. Like that. What does that ELISA test look like? Is that like giving blood as well? Yeah, it's just a blood test. I mean, it's, 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 it's just like getting a blood draw, you know, for, for any other test. All right. Well, what should I do if I have medical needs not related to the coronavirus? What precautions are in place at the hospitals? So, you know, we, we all, uh, way ahead of the governor's order, shut down a lot of uh, medical care in order to be ready for the surge of coronavirus, a lot of which started and then which peaked um, really as a result of the things that we did as a community. Um, and because, you know, when this first started, um, you know, we'd been on allocation for three months, even though we saw some of this coming, we could only get about 125% of our normal supplies of 
some of the personal protective equipment, all those kinds of things. And so we all recognize some shortages of that or potential short shortages as things amped up, potential shortages of staff that need to have beds open. So all of that was ramped down. We moved to a lot of telemedicine platforms. Now we are, uh, you know, starting this actually since last Monday now. So uh, eight days, we started doing more, uh, more testing. Um, so MRI, CT scans, mammograms, those kinds of things. Um, and since last Wednesday, started doing some urgent surgeries, but ones that previously we had been deferring, not quite okay. elective, fully elective procedures yet. As of this Friday, we will start ramping that up uh, more. Um, we're doing that gradually and safely. Um, safety is, you know, numbers one, two, three, four, and five as we plan all of this. We've mm -hmm. safely cared for many, many ill patients who don't have COVID. In fact, the majority of patients in our hospital still don't have COVID. Uh, and they've been treated for very, treated very, very safely. So we are confident we can do the same as we start uh, ramping back up. So if you have medical needs, by all means, uh, be talking to your physicians and uh, we'll, we'll be there to take care of you. If you have an emergency, come to emergency rooms. We are there to care for you. One of the things we're seeing nationally and internationally that's a great level of concern is that some people are avoiding hospitals when they have emergent issues. And so there's some evidence out there that there have been deaths, there have been severe, mm -hmm. uh, you know, bad outcomes of patients who might have stroke, might have heart attack, might have some other uh, significant issues who have been afraid to come to hospitals. I can wow. promise you we will do everything to keep people uh, very, very safe when they come here. And, you know, the, the risks of coming here compared to the benefits of coming here for care that you need, it's a very clear analysis, which is the benefits will far outweigh the risks. And so I urge people to work with their physicians, um, you know, to get the care that they need and not defer necessary things. Um, hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get back to, you know, some state of, you know, relative normal. And I say relative normal because we will have many extra procedures in place to keep everybody safe and sound. Um, we are surveillance testing all of our staff on the front lines and have been doing that for now quite some time. Um, we check, do temperature checks, we do uh, questionnaires, everybody who comes in mm -hmm. is masked, all of the staff here will be masked, et cetera. So there is, and, you know, significantly increased cleaning procedures, um, basically eliminating, or if there is a waiting room, it is very, very spaced out, uh, socially distanced waiting room where in the few cases where that's necessary. So pretty significant uh, safety protocols in place. And we've been doing that throughout. I mean, if you think about it, we've had people who've needed MRIs urgently, who've needed CAT scans, who've needed, you know, non-COVID related surgeries. And we have taken care of those patients very safely throughout this entire process. Well, Dr. Boom, on a personal note, I, I can, uh, I can say uh, thank you from the bottom of our heart. To, and on a personal note, I had an episode in December, and not just because Houston Methodist is one of our partners with Houston Radio and the Astros, but uh, you know, Houston Methodist saved my life, and as doctors like you and and your staff that uh, uh, allowed me to be here right now. So I'm very grateful. I, I thank you for that. Is there anything else that we can do uh, to help besides staying at home and washing our hands? Well, for, I guess first, let me let me finish by saying first off, thank you for sharing that story. That that, that means mm -hmm. so much to all of us. Um, that's exactly why we are here and do what we do. I mean, I, I, medicine is a calling, and uh, you know, from from what Dr. Lintner will describe to what uh, everyone across the institution does, um, these are amazing people who do great work. And and I just yeah. want to um, say thank you to the Astros as well. Um, Jim Crane, with his logistics and shipping business, has been a true hero for us in terms of uh, securing PPE when we together in the Med Center could go to him and say, hey, we got this stuff in China. And he, he had boots on the ground to go 
look at PPE in China and tell us whether it was good or not, and then could get it directly here. He was really superb and, and, and wonderful. That's great. And so many of the players have been great. They've been buying meals for staff, writing notes, doing videos from, from Alex Bregman to uh, Colors to Carlos Correa and others. Um, just really uh, deeply appreciate uh, uh, the partnership with the Astros. Y'all are a wonderful first-class organization, and we're proud of our partnership going back uh, you know, decades now. Well, I think I think we're all proud to do it. So thanks for spending the time and answering uh, these important questions. Uh, it's cleared up a lot, and I know things are, are fluid, but uh, what you guys do are, are very much appreciated. So thank you very much. My pleasure. All right, Dr. David Lentner. Uh, I've known Dr. Lentner for quite a while. He's the chief of orthopedics and sports medicine at Houston Methodist. And he's the team medical director now for the Astros. And He's been around this team for 25 years, back to the Astrodome. So, Dr. Littner, thanks for coming in and answering a few questions. And I certainly have some questions like, what in the world are the players doing right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question. Um, you know, they're by rule, they're not allowed in the facility, both uh, yeah. county, county rule, but also baseball. Um, so they're, they're on their own. Now, these guys, you know, by definition, are pros. Um, you know, they're you know, they're maintaining what they've got and, and working to to you know, stay in great shape. Remember, you know, all this came down in the middle of spring training and they were ramping up, getting close to being regular season ready. And then the rug got pulled out. So um, most of them were working out on their own. Um, many of them have access to you know, private gyms, either their own or through our private relationships. Um, and they're they're staying strong. You know, the one of the one of the big issues though is you know for the pitchers, as you well know, having somebody to throw to, and yeah. some, someone to give them feedback as to uh, you know what's happening with um, with their ball movement, spin rate, and all that sort of stuff. And so that's been a challenge. But it's, but essentially, the guys are working out on their own, like they would have been in participation. Or excuse me, in anticipation of spring training participation. Um, but they need the gameplay. You know, to get ready for uh, for game situations, they need the on the field, um, you know, on the field competition to really get ready. Yeah, and you just can't simulate that uh, by by working out, especially when you're not around uh, your teammates. How's the team working with the players remotely for for like rehab exercises and training, and what's the impact on not being able to work with with them in person? Yes, yeah, so that that is uh, that is a big deal. Now, um, as as you know, you know Jeremiah Randall, the head athletic trainer, and you know, uh, Sam Bell and Lee Meyer, the you know, the athletic training staff, and Vern, you know, with the strength and conditioning uh, coaches. I mean, they they are in regular contact with each and every one of the players, and uh, and up and down the organization, you know, the minor league strength and conditioning staff and athletic trainers are in contact with uh, every one of the players, even if they're international, um, making sure that they're, um, you know, one, healthy, you know, as Dr. Boom said, you know, safety is numbers one, two, and three, and making sure that they're not having symptoms that would indicate, you know, a COVID-type infection, but then also monitoring, you know, their their progress, their their strength programs, giving advice, uh, for how to modify or increase or taper their strength and conditioning programs. And then, of course, we have a few guys that are recovering from surgeries or from uh, you know, various things. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those guys, um, every day, multiple times a day, are in touch, uh, particularly with Jeremiah, 
Um, and then Jeremiah or you know, Randall is in touch with their local therapist. Remember, if you're rehabbing in Florida, um, we need to keep tabs on what's going on in Florida or if you're in California or Oklahoma or wherever. And that really falls, uh, as you know, on the athletic training staff to, uh, right. to monitor, not just by talking with the players, but also communicating with their the strength coaches that are working with them or their therapists. So I, I think about some of the guys that have had surgery and a lot of times, I mean, it's the trainer's hands. I mean, they, they, they put their hands on players to, to kind of go through a lot of this. So, but a lot of that, you know, is, is just some of the stuff during this rehab process right now that you just have to skip and you just have to modify right now. Yeah, yeah, very much. And that, that, that's actually a really good point, Steve. Any, anyone that's been in a team sport, you knows the value of having the person-to-person contact with the athletic uh-huh. trainer or their physical therapist, and and some and some of it is you just monitoring what exercises are being done and how much weight and how's your form and how many repetitions. But but let's face it, a lot of it is the the look in the eyes, you know, of the athlete, you know, right? And the, the range of motion. Exactly. And how do the tissues feel? And is the athlete confident? Uh, um, all those things you can only do face to face. You know, telemedicine and you know, FaceTime and all that is great, but it's not the same as that, that hands-on contact. And especially when you're talking about rehabbing an injury in a professional athlete with a therapist or a tra- athletic trainer that's been with that athlete all along every step of the way. Yeah. Uh, has there been any, say, initial research on long-term effects uh, to athletes or anyone placed on ventilators due to contracting the COVID-19? Well, you know, the long-term effects, you know, we obviously don't know because the virus hasn't been around that long. Uh, but uh, the short and intermediate terms, we know that anybody that's had a significant pulmonary infection, whether it's COVID or something else, is going to have some damage to the lungs. I mean, think of a of a balloon that's now thicker, it's less flexible, it's harder to inflate. Um, and so my understanding is that looking more at endurance athletes, uh, that there has been some noticed decrease in pulmonary capacity, meaning you can't have as efficient usage of the oxygen uh, that you require to exercise. And so we would expect to see that be an ongoing issue in more aerobic dependent uh, athletes. Um, But frankly, we don't know the long-term effects because we just haven't been in this game long enough. What would you consider baseball? Is that an endurance athlete or is it more anaerobic? I, I presume you're joking, but it, it, it's, uh, it's pretty much a, pretty much anaerobic. Although uh, you know, we, we laugh about it, uh, but if you think about what a pitcher does, uh, you got to have the base. You got to have the got to have the cardio fitness to be a to be a successful yeah. pitcher because you're doing an anaerobic activity, meaning a single throw, but you're doing a lot of them one right after the other in a stressful environment. Right. All right. Can you talk about the uh, MLB giving tests to thousands of players and employees to detect the COVID-19 antibodies and what they hope to discover from this? And have there been any results shared from this yet? Yeah, so that's a good question. Obviously, there was some media uh, media run about this uh, this baseball yeah. testing. 
Um, yeah, first of all, as Dr. Boom said, the antibody tests are very new and they're of unknown efficacy. You know, we don't know how accurate they are. Um, and so they're, they're undergoing just super rapid research. And so what the base, what the quote baseball um, antibody test was not a program initiated by baseball at all. It actually didn't have anything to do with baseball. Um, some researchers at the University of Southern California and primarily at Stanford University uh, had an antibody test that they wanted to get tested on a wide swath of uh, people as quickly as possible. And uh, any medical research takes a long time to do. Uh, so they actually went outside normal um, medical research populations and, and, and just figured out, you know, we have 30 baseball teams scattered across the country. So by enlisting their help, uh, we can get, we meaning the, the researchers, can get, can get the data nationwide and yeah. get it quickly. Baseball, baseball teams, if nothing else, are pretty well organized and efficient organizations. And so what they did was um, offer, not require, but offer the testing to the to all 30 baseball franchises for their for their administrative and office staff, not for um, not for players. Um, it was uh, geared towards recruiting a high uh, a high population, a large population of people nationwide very quickly. And my understanding is 28 out of the 30 major league clubs participated, including the Astros. Uh, almost 200 tests were done by the Astros staff. Again, not players. This was uh, you know, people that work in HR and accounting and the business office and the ticket office and um, the athletic trainers and so on. The, the, the behind the scenes people had these um, their uh, these antibody tests uh, performed. And you know, so you know, this was done across the country. Um, it was all done anonymously, meaning uh, no one at the Astros knows the results of anybody else at the Astros. Um, again, the burden of accomplishing the logistics fell on the athletic training staff. And uh, you know, Jeremiah and Sam and Lee um, you know, worked their butts off to, to basically facilitate almost 200 tests over a, uh, you know, a day and a half period and then, then look at all the results. Um, anonymously, of course, and so the the early results are the are the property of the researchers at USC and Stanford, and they will be published. Um, they um, the the number of positive tests. My understanding is that it's it's lower than you would expect, which does make you wonder, as Dr. Boom referenced, you know, how accurate are these tests, and if they are accurate. Fantastic. Then the penetration in the community is uh, perhaps smaller than we had thought. Uh, but you know, I want to emphasize this was not a test done to see how many players have been exposed or who okay. can play or when can we get back to play. This was a general population test. It just so happened that baseball provided a great way to get a lot of people from all corners of the country. Yeah, and they were able to streamline it. Okay, I've got two more questions for you, Dr. Lindner. Uh, number one is, since you've been with the Astros 25 years, that's puts you back to the Astrodome. And I've always been fascinated by Judge Hallfines, who was the first owner of the Astros. So uh, he was also obviously responsible for the, the construction of the Astrodome. 
So what I want to know is, did you ever see this this fabled suite that he had, this six-story suite in the Astrodome that was equipped with the barber shop and the bowling alley and all that? All right, Steve. Now, how old do you think I am? I mean, that. No, he still would have had to have the suite in there. See, when I, I started with the Astros in uh, 94, my first experience yeah. was in 91 when I was doing my uh, sports medicine fellowship in Houston. Um, but uh, uh, Mr. McMullen was the owner uh, at the time. Right. And uh, my understanding is the suite was still there at the time. But it had I, to be, yeah. But I never had the privilege of, uh, of you know, going to see it. You didn't get to see it. So I, I you know, know, I've always wanted to, you know, some people get a chance to go back and, and see the, the dome. You, somebody, somebody's out there and can kind of take you in to see behind the scenes, look at some of that stuff. So I got to find that some, at some point. All right, here's the last thing. What advice would you give high school athletes or active adults to stay in shape during the lockdown? Well, you know, I think it's fairly self-evident, you know, and, you know, I, uh, I still see a good number of patients via telemedicine and effective this week actually in person. So um, you know, it, it's frustrating for athletes who are used to be who are used to being in a group setting where they can you know, work out in a gym, you know, maybe have a strength coach with them or a personal trainer, uh, that sort of thing, and they have that taken away. So you, you have to be creative. You know, we are in uh, in the internet age, and of course there are uh, just a gazillion you know, workout videos uh, on uh, YouTube and so on, that many of which are pretty good um, and can be done with minimal equipment. You just need a little bit of space uh, for body weight exercises if you want to work on strength training. And then, of course, um, you can make use of the parks, the streets, the stairway in your building, um, things like that to get a to get a fair amount of exercise. It's no surprise that. You know, I was out at Ellen Tinsley Park this uh, this weekend along Allen Parkway. There are a lot of people out there working out, running up and down the hills, running along the paths, yeah. uh, going for walks, out for bike rides. You, know, you you can be active. You can maintain some fitness with a little creativity. And frankly, as Dr. Boom said, being outside um, just with the natural ventilation is perhaps one of the safest places you can be, as long as you're not clustered with a you know with a you know a, a group. Um, so, you know, uh, a lot of it requires a little product, a little, uh, uh, you know, creativity, um, mm-hmm. a little bit of uh, self uh, self motivation to get you, get yourself out there and be uh, you know, be working out outside your cardio, especially bike, run, you know, stairs, body weight, um, you know, strengthening exercises for your legs, especially, and even for uh, uppers. If your upper extremities, you know, there's a lot of ways you can stay fit. It does require a little creativity, a little motivation, um, but uh, it's certainly, it's certainly possible. Well, I think uh, a little creativity is what we're all about right now. So uh, I, I certainly appreciate both of you, Dr. Mark Boone, the Houston Methodist CEO, Dr. David Lintner, the Houston Astros Medical Director. Thanks so much for taking the time, number one, but number two is to answer these questions and. Uh, give us a little insight on uh, how we carry forward and hopefully we're all responsible the rest of the way. All right, Steve. Great. Pleasure. See you later. Whether it's at the ballpark or at home. That ball's smoked to center field. That is gone. A go-ahead two-run home run for Correa. Justin Verlander, another exclamation point in a Hall of Fame career.
big moments can happen anywhere. Anywhere. Thanks to all the frontline workers. Thanks to those sacrificing now. Soon we can cheer together. Together. Stay safe, Houston.